This week on a podcast from beneath, The Changeling. Aaron, how's it going? Doing mighty fine over here, son, Texas. Doing great, man. How are you doing? Nah, I'm doing pretty good. William, how are you doing? Very good, Kai. All right, so uh, from well, when was this movie coming out? This came out in 80... 1980. 1980. All right, The Changeling. Yes, I'll just ask this question. Is this a, a gothic horror story in the classic sense of what a gothic horror story is, or is it just the setting that makes me think that? Well, the setting would be, uh, in a gothic story, the setting would be an important aspect, right? Uh, the house that he's in is practically like a castle. So, yes, I think it probably would be considered a gothic, uh, a gothic story. It, it's certainly going for that vibe, I would, I would say. Um, what, what brought you to uh, think of this movie? Is there you have some special uh, interest in it or preference for it? So... Back before streaming <laughs> and back before DVD, you could we would rent VHS tapes and then we would just record them, <laughs> make copies I, of them. I so we would have time. we would have several tapes that would just have Guilty. like three, yeah three <laughs> movies on each tape. We would just have all these and uh, and I would say this was probably probably early two thousands, late nineties. Whenever I just put a tape in the VCR and this movie was on it, mm-hmm. and it was late at night, and for some reason it creeped me out. <laughs> Yeah, there are they some effective that, scenes in it. Yeah, and uh, and I hadn't really thought about it for a while, and then I think I seen a trailer or something for it pop up somewhere, and I thought, oh yeah, I'd like to talk about that movie. For me, this was uh, my first watch of this film. I I knew it existed, and Angelina Jolie did a great job. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I know <what> <laughs> um, <laughs> you know that's funny when you put in the Changeling when you're looking, it, it brings up her film. And it's just called Changeling. But anyway. There's also a Star um, Trek episode called The Changeling. Yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. oh wow. I did, not, I did not know that. That's the one with the but, little uh, floating robot. Oh. Yeah, the little gray metal robot that floats around. Yeah. Oh, wow. And, and I, and I uh, well, I, I don't want to get into Star Trek. Because <laughs> I was like, I, I, I rewatched it. Um, no, uh, The Changeling, it, it's, uh, first off, George C. Scott is the goat. I mean, that guy, he just... A great actor. Hmm. And um, I agree with Carrie. It does have a gothic feel to it. Um, these these movies, you know, they it's kind of like it turns me into Two-Face a little bit to watch these kinds of films. Because one side of me is the uh, the guy's like, where's all the blood and guts and everything? And then there's the other side of me like, hey, stupid, pay attention to the story. So that's, <laughs> that's what the kind of the story is great. And uh, really how it kicks off you don't expect that especially if you don't read into it you just sit there and watch it i'm like holy crap you know his his daughter and his wife are on the side of the road and he's trying to use a payphone, and uh and you know this uh idiot's driving around he's swerving in the snow and then he causes a uh i guess a dump truck to swerve off and then it just takes out his family
How many dramas and horror films, especially, begin with traffic accidents that kill family members? Yeah. <laughs> be, I mean, I can't think of any other one right off the off the top of my no, head. No, you can. I mean, you're you're right. That it does. But what I'm saying is, I didn't expect that. And yeah, I saw the car swerve. I'm like, I don't know what's gonna go on. Are they gonna hit? Is it gonna hit them or what? But I love how it did that to where. You know, uh, a dumb dumb like me has to think, oh, okay, his family died. You know, you don't see an ambulance. You don't see him go to the doctor's office like, what's wrong with my wife? You just, It goes right to where, you know, he's at now. Well, it's so I thought that was pretty cool. It's particularly surprising because his wife is played by Jean Marsh, who at that time was a pretty prominent actress. Oh, my father. Oh, it's only a couple million more miles. A couple of what? couple of million more miles. No, right up here, we're going to stop. Keep pushing, don't quit. Mexico next time. Uh, she was uh, uh, acclaimed for her performance in Upstairs, Downstairs, which was a 70s uh, British drama that was a big success here in the United States on Masterpiece Theater. I don't know if you remember back in the prehistoric times. Uh, <laughs> I know what Masterpiece Theater is. But I think Masterpiece I Theater is still on the air. Uh, but Masterpiece Theater would bring British TV shows over to the United States. And of course, if it was British, then it was a masterpiece. That goes without saying, right? Yeah. <laughs> no matter what they showed, it was a masterpiece because it was from. You mean Benny Hill's a masterpiece? That's, yeah, suddenly <laughs> anything would qualify. But actually, Upstairs, Downstairs is a great show. And, and Jean Marsh was uh, a talented actress. And what's su surprising about that is you. And I had forgotten it because I hadn't seen this movie in years until I watched it for this. Uh, uh, you're thinking, well, Gene Marsh is, is his wife. Surely they're going to have a scene together, you know, at least. But she gets killed before the opening credits, right? Yeah. So, so that is surprising. And I assume that's intentional. The whole movie seems to be uh, filled with character actors that we're probably familiar with from seeing them, like Barry, Barry Moss. The guy from The Fugitive and Space mm -hmm. 1999, who pops up for like, I don't even know if it's a minute in the movie with a terrible accent that looks like it was dubbed. We have coming here many mediums and spiritualists and so, and we test them. Now, 99% are the frauds. <laughs> but, uh, and the guy uh, who plays his friend, the one that he visits before going onto the house. He's also a character actor that did a lot of TV. And uh, that woman who plays Trish Vanderveer's mother, that strange looking woman, she's uh, was actually a regular on The Flying Nun. I don't know if you remember The Flying Nun. <laughs> yeah. No, I, <laughs> and she it's was funny that you're saying that, but I, I mean, I grew up in my uh, my mom and all that. They watch that stuff, so I know mm -hmm. what you're talking about. I've seen this well, stuff. I'm surprised. I, just... I, I looked into it, and I, apparently The Flying Nun was on for like three or four years. Uh, really? Yeah, so I guess it was popular. But that same woman, Madeline Sherwood, uh, she was also in an episode of Columbo. And so was Trish Vanderveer. Trish Vanderveer was in one episode that I particularly liked, where she plays a TV executive who bumps off her boyfriend uh, network executive. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember that one. So there are two people in this that were in an episode of Columbo. But yeah. um, uh, the plot of this is a composer who is, I guess, supposed to be taken as a kind of Leonard Bernstein type character, uh, very well respected. Uh, he's in the process of creating a new uh, um, uh, 
composition of some kind of uh, a symphony or something like that. And uh, in the old, I guess it's pre-credits, we see this traffic accident that you described where his wife and his young daughter are killed. And then after the opening credits, we see him sort of wandering around Manhattan near Lincoln Center. Uh, he's despondent uh, and uh, decides to sell his apartment in Manhattan and move to Seattle uh, to live in a, an old house, uh, which is yeah. being leased to him by the historical society there. And once he gets himself settled in, he begins to hear strange sounds. And eventually through uh, uh, a bit of detection work that would have impressed Sherlock Holmes, he somehow figures out every detail of why this boy, this young boy is haunting the house. Uh, spoilers, it's, uh, the, uh, the boy was a, a, a cripple and his father was afraid that he would die before he reached the age of 21. Apparently there was some sort of clause in a will that if he didn't survive to the age of 21, his, the money would not would go to charity. So the father is afraid of all the money dissipating. So he drowns the boy in his bathtub and, and takes a little boy from an orphanage and replaces him. Uh, in his household, and that kid grows up to be a senator. And the senator is, I guess, a guy in his 80s in, in the movie. It's played by Melvin Douglas, who had a long career as a leading man in Hollywood going back to the 30s. Matter of fact, Melvin Douglas was in uh, The Old Dark House, which was a 1932 James Whale movie with Boris Karloff, Charles Lawton, and Raymond Massey. Talk about a great cast. But he isn't leading man stature anymore. He's playing a shriveled old man. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, you, you found, uh, Gary, you found this movie disturbing or? or uh, not disturbing, just, um, I'd say the, the, yeah, the scenes that got me were the, whenever he would just hear the loud banging. Right. You know what I'm saying? Because it was, it wasn't a door creaking. It was if you if you were alone in a house and you heard that noise, it yeah. you know what I'm saying it's that is something. That's not like you can't Yeah, you would freak out. You can't mistake that yeah. for anything else. Yeah. No, that was a, that was a creepy scene. And when he sees the sort of vision of the uh little boy uh in the bathtub, uh that's kind of spooky too. Well um, no, I think the um that really didn't creep me out as much as the sound because I think seeing it visually doesn't really well, also when you realize just, just what the, the sound sounds, is, yeah, just the sounds that that that's more uh, has more a bigger impact on me than seeing stuff visually. Well, and, I think, and the scenes in this, you know, <clears throat> I, I think they they help build it up, you know, especially like I said, you have George C. Scott. He's he's a very good actor, and when he's going through the house, you're hearing these noises, and he's just you know. I've always seen him as you know a gruff, you know, kind of you know General Patton, you know. Uh, but he also looked kind of concerned. You see a big guy like that, and he's kind of concerned. It's like, what is going on here in this house? And what is he going to end up finding? And I, I love the, how this movie is shot. It's a beautiful-looking um, movie. There's, yeah. it, it is. It's, it, it's very well done. And um, his acting helps build that tension, I think. In my, it, that's my opinion. Yeah. 
I guess the only, uh, not to be a spoil sport or, or, or a dick about it, but I, I get the feeling when I watch a movie like this that, uh, first of all, it was uh, the uh, obvious inspiration is The Omen. Uh, yeah. Big Hollywood star to do a supernatural type thing. And it involves, just as The Omen does, a changeling, a baby being switched, right, or a, young, a child being switched. That's the opening scene in The Omen. It also involves uh, people who are in positions of power or authority right, in the government. Uh, there's sort of a conspiracy th- uh, aspect to it. But it seems to me that the whereas The Omen had a very precise script, everything followed very neatly. It may be an absurd story, but it, you know, it was very tightly written. Uh, this one is kind of sloppy in that it, it has a lot of unnecessary stuff. They waste a lot of opportunities. Like for instance, um, they want to have the scene after the opening credits, they want to have that scene of him sort of wandering around Lincoln Center because it's a Canadian film and they want it to look like an American film. So they figure that'll make this look like a big American production. If we have this big American star and he's in a, you know, obviously an iconic location in, in New York. Uh, but all that stuff is really wasted because uh, we understand that the guy is going to be sad after his wife and daughter are killed. <laughs> yeah. uh, and and it's, uh, there's a, there are scenes later in the movie that would have been better at the beginning of the movie. There's sort of unnecessary stuff. They wanted to start in Manhattan and they wanted him to be leaving Manhattan right, right away. So they have him go to this sort of halfway place. He ends up with his friends. And there's a scene where they introduce his friend and his friend's wife and his friend's kid. And they have a conversation. It's like, why is this in this movie? Why didn't he yeah. just go from where he was to the house that he's going to be living in? And I'm surprised that it did kind of move fast. Uh, that's one thing that did surprise me. And, and you're right. There's there's scenes like that that are like, what the hell is this doing? I was surprised it went from the mother and daughter dying. Like I said before, there was no like hospital scene. There was no funeral scene. All right. But it shows him going through his thing, and then he goes to this place and this place. But I did feel like, yeah, it's kind of a slow thing, but not really. I mean, they kind of you know, moving oh. to this spot, to this spot. And it didn't really take that long. You know what I mean? Like I, I expected it to take longer. Well, <laughs> so I, that's not just me. I didn't find it boring. I enjoyed it. Both times that yeah. I watched this film, I've enjoyed it. Uh, it's atmospheric and, and it's always fun to watch George C. Scott. But it just struck me that with films like The Exorcist and The Omen, uh, they sort of finely tune the story so that everything counts. You know, and the stuff later in the movie is more effective if the proper groundwork has been laid. Nothing that happens in the rest of the movie has anything to do with those scenes in uh, Manhattan, right? Hmm. There's, no, there's no point to the scene where he uh, is greeted by the doorman and the doorman uh, gives his condolences or says what, if anything you need. There's no point to the scene with him uh, talking to his maid or housekeeper when she drops yeah. the ball. Uh, all that stuff could have been done away with. My version of the story is you take that scene later in the movie where he's teaching the class, which is wasted where it is. I mean, what's the point of that scene, right? Uh, it shows us that he's a good teacher. It shows us that 
Uh, a lot of people want to be in his class. I mean, what's the point of that? Uh, we all know that it's not raining outside. And unless there's a fire in some other part of the building that we don't know about, uh, an awful lot of people here with nothing better to do. <laughs> However, <laughs> we'll uh, know more after the second lecture. Uh, I'm sure there are many of you who may recognize this. But if you take that scene and you move it to the beginning of the movie, you have his wife and his kid die at the beginning, you have the titles, then it's five, six months later. It's the first time he's going back to class. He's uh, teaching for, just like Leonard Bernstein used to, he gives talks to young people about music. So this is the first time he's returning after his, you know, he's finished grieving and he's returned to class and it doesn't go well. There's a big crowd and he's, it looks like he gets off to a good start and he's, you know, uh, talking away. And then suddenly he sees somebody in the crowd, in the audience that reminds him of his daughter or his wife. And he stops and he says, and you can see George C. Scott doing this. He says, class is dismissed. And everybody sort of sits there stunned and he says, get out, you know, and then we cut to him sitting alone at night in his dark apartment, staring out the window. And his friend, the guy that came that showed up to the, for that pointless scene uh, in the version that was actually produced, he shows up at the door. He's a representative of the university or the institution that uh, has hired uh, Russell, the composer that Josie Scott plays. And he says, you know, the, the kids thought you were dr drunk. Uh, I'm not drunk. I was never drunk, you know. Mm. And, and the guy said, and, and he, he could say, well, the uh, university is paying, he paid you this commission to come up with this new score. Uh, he's, I can't work here. Everything around here reminds me of them. And he said, I got a solution for you. I'm in touch with this historical society in Seattle. They got a big house where you, they're willing to let you, just for the pleasure of having you uh, in the place, they'll let you take over the place for the whole winter. You can go there, you can finish your composition, and you can get away from here and forget about bad memories next scene is him being shown around the house by trish yeah. not all this nonsense with him sitting around with, with friends in some sort of in-between place you know that's a wasted scene so but just by restructuring stuff and using stuff that's actually in the finished film they could have had a much more dramatic story most oh, for sure most uh, ghost stories and haunted house stories once you get the person in the house you want to keep them there, right? I mean, in The Shining, they don't have the Torrance family going out shopping at the local mall. Yeah. <laughs> right? Once you're in the house, the idea is to keep you there because part of the effectiveness of a ghost story is that the person who is experiencing it may or may not be interpreting things correctly. They may not be right in the head. He's a person that just had lost his wife and kid. So he may be more susceptible to hallucination or because of his depression. And so that would always be on the mind of the audience. Are we really seeing this or is this something that's just going on in his mind? Instead, what happens in the movie is he sort of becomes like a Sherlock Holmes character, just investigating the, this boy's death. And I don't see why he would care. And, and yeah. they, had, they had that business of him running to the airport and trying to stop the senator from getting on his plane and waving a medallion at him. I'm living in your house. Senator, look. Look, I want to talk to him. Let me go. Senator. 
baptism this. It's got your name on it. There's all sorts of problems with that scene. First of yeah. all, nine, 1980 was before 9-11, obviously, but there were plenty of hijackings, hijackings and plenty of yeah. assassinations. You can't just drive up to a senator as he's getting on a plane, yeah. you know, yeah. and start harassing him. And also, still... what, what is his motivation for doing that? What did he think the senator would say? Why is the senator a villain in this? The senator doesn't know anything about what what happened. Yeah, he he, he was, was a little was, boy. Yeah, they they vilified him, and it's like he didn't know. If the he only was villain, <laughs> the only villain in this story is the father, who presumably is long gone, right? The father who drowned the little boy. Yeah. So, so what did he expect to accomplish? Did he expect the senator to say, oh, you crazy person who comes screaming at me when I'm getting on my plane. Come on, get a, let me see. Yeah, what let you me have talk to you a minute. <laughs> then they try to suggest that just from that brief glimpse and, and uh, Melvin Douglas turns a little bit and sees George C. Scott screaming at him from a distance and he's waving something in his hand and was supposed to believe that Melvin Douglas immediately recognized that that's the same medallion that he's wearing. That he has on, yeah. Yeah. Why does he care so much? Why you know, does George thought... Scott care? And why does Melvin Douglas care? Yeah. Because the senator has no reason to believe. None of this is on his mind. It's not like, oh, suddenly the truth is out. He doesn't know anything about this, right? So some crazy guy comes to the airport and weighs a medallion on him. And right away, he's sicking his uh, police uh, officers on the guy. Mr. Russell. Uh -huh. My name is DeWitt, Captain DeWitt. Oh, yeah. I'd like to talk to you, if I may. All right. Quite a house. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. that scene—that scene is a throwaway as well. Same problem. Why should we see that police officer as a villain? He's taking the direction from the senator who says some person's trying to blackmail him. But when yeah. he shows up at the place. Uh, and they got the guy who played a Klingon on Star Trek uh, to uh, play this part. But he's not a bad guy. He's doing his job, right? And as far as he knows, this guy is trying to blackmail the senator. But why would the senator think he's trying to blackmail him? Blackmail yeah, him what, did, what did the senator do? Yeah, right. He didn't <laughs> he's like, do they found that girl in the lake. <laughs> and, and they had that other scene earlier where the woman at the historical society is calling the senator and that doesn't really make sense either because first they're trying to position her as sort of like the villagers that tell Renfield, uh, Renfield not to go to Castle Dracula you know mm -hmm. the house doesn't want anybody to live there you know all that sort of bullshit that house shouldn't have been rented Miss Norman rushed those papers through our attorney's office she did not use proper channels why should anyone object that house is not fit to live in. No one's been able to live in it. It doesn't want people. It's not the sort of thing you would expect to hear from a rational person, and, you know, and, and, but that's the way she is in one scene. And then the next thing we, and that next time we see her, she's calling the Senate and says, oh, somebody's looking into your, you know, uh, somebody's uh, <laughs> investigating you. Going through the files. Let me have that name again. John Russell. 
very glad to be of help, as you know. Why would she think that there's anything, any information that would need, need to be protected? Is she calling the Senate to say that house you used to live in is haunted and somebody's investigating that? Or is she calling to say, I know that you aren't really the guy's kid and the original kid was drowned and somebody's looking into it. Obviously, that's not the case, right? She doesn't yeah. know about that. So why is she doing that? You know, it doesn't make sense. It seems to me that the screenwriter here is... Uh, sort of coasting on the fact that all of these scenes are things that we've seen in other movies. So he's expecting mm -hmm. us to just accept it without thinking about it. But I mean, th th those seem uh, like uh, that what, what they should have done is put George C. Scott in this place and allow him to interact with the ghost. And they really needed a second ghost here, not just one, you need two. You need the boy's ghost and you also need the father's ghost. Mm -hmm. and, and the way I would reimagine it is the boy's ghost is haunting people who live in the house because he wants to reveal that the father murdered him. And the father's ghost is stuck around the house to keep people out so that they won't hear what the little, uh, the little boy's ghost has to tell them. So just like in Hell House, you're never really sure which ghost is doing what. You know, it's not just one ghost who's because the little boy's ghost it's sort of inexplicable as to why he's behaving this way um uh, he wants george c scott to know for what for what reason what's the point well, it's kind of like these other movies you know well it kind of remind me you know there's uh, the stir of echoes where the girl got murdered but you know that ghost comes back and talks to kevin bacon or you know kevin bacon's freaking out because this girl ghost keeps showing up and come to find out but there again you know the the villains were still alive the father and son that killed her were still alive to expose them right here this one like you said the father's long gone but i like where you're going with that because that would have made a lot more sense and then maybe if you wanted the senator to be a villain the senator probably found out years later or whatever when he yes. got older right and he sees George C. Scott start doing his thing, and he's like, okay, I'm going to send my dudes to shut this guy up because I love my father. I don't care what he did. I don't want him exposed to be a dick, you know, or a, an asshole that murdered his own son. Yes. That's but the scene that's it, Like you missing. said, he doesn't know. He's like, what the hell is this guy doing? Right. <laughs> and and the, uh, actually, by sending the police officer to browbeat George C. Scott, He's confirming, yes, you do have it on, you, you have stuff on me. Whereas if he just ignored it, who would ever believe a story like that, right? Uh, the other problem is, uh, as I say, you want to try to keep people in the house, right? Once you get the uh, haunting started, you don't want people going off different places. You don't want scenes of people driving around, you know, mm -hmm. that adds to the production value, makes it look like a big fancy movie, but it, it, takes it lets the air out of the out of the out of the film you know um why is the well in somebody else's house, that's, house. That, that's what i couldn't figure out because you're stuck then introducing a whole new set of characters later in the thing i they have the scene early on where he finds the room the room is hidden behind shelves which is a rosemary's baby reference if you remember rosemary's baby mm -hmm, mm -hmm. she has to take all the towels off and take the shelves down in order to get into the into the other apartment um, I would say that that should have been saved for the well, 
there's no reason, no conceivable reason why somebody, after they commit a murder, they kill a small child, and then they leave the room exactly the way it was with the wheelchair and with all this evidence that proves that such a child existed, and they just put a bunch of shelves in front yeah. of the door. <laughs> I mean, that, but if the room is just a closed room that's not used in this enormous house, that would sort of make sense. And when he finds the room, he, he, he's just led up all those flights of stairs and finds the room that that sound is emanating from, that would make sense. But you wouldn't still have the wheelchair there, right? They had the wheelchair there because they want to have that fairly ridiculous yeah. scene with the wheelchair. Thing is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so save that for later. Save that for when he's going to the basement and looking around and he finds some little cubby hole and then he goes inside and he finds the well. And that has to be done just by himself. The suspense should be, what is he going to find? What's going to happen to him? There's really no menace in this film. We never really feel like anybody is in danger, right? Yeah. Which is, which is a real difference from The Omen, where at any moment, some pane of glass can cut your head yeah. off and spikes yeah. running through people. And, <laughs> Someone right? hanging herself at a birthday yeah. party. Well, go, go, going, back to the, going back to why the ghost is there, I just assumed it was the uh, find my body and put it in a proper burial so I can <laughs> go on to the afterlife, whatever, you know, that, that sort of storyline. Well, but if, yeah. if, that, if that's the case, then th that's another scene that we really should have seen in the film, right? Uh, there should have been one of the medium that they bring in should say that, that uh, this ghost won't be able to rest until he's taken from uh, the, the scene of the murder. If, if it was in the house, right. should have been should have been in the house, take him out of this unholy place so he can go on. Uh, what did you think about the uh, the seance scene with the automatic writing and all that? I, I thought, well, I that, thought was that was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Is there someone here you wish to communicate with? John. Help! 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 John! Help! 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 Um, the scene with him reviewing the recordings, that's a ripoff from The Exorcist. Right? Yeah. Uh, and not really as effectively done. I mean, the sounds that uh, Jason Miller hears when he's reviewing the tapes of him talking to Reagan uh, still, you know, send a, ch uh, a chill down my spine. But this, oh, yeah. in here, it's just the voice, you know, it doesn't really, I, I, and also not really clear why the ghost would leave these messages on a tape recording instead of just say, uh, letting his voice be audible during the, during the seance. I mean, what's the point of that? It seems like a lot of the scenes are just filler. They're just yeah. Taking yeah, but there was one scene that I didn't understand, and it was uh, I guess he had some of his students that were, I guess, playing the, his piece that he's writing, 
and they're playing for a couple minutes and then they stop and then it cuts to them packing up in their car and leaving and i was like it was like just two short scenes like they just added together and like it didn't make sense i don't even oh i get you yeah (laughs) well that's very good we're still not together in the offbeats and darling you're uh, retarding a little too much in the last four bars otherwise it was splendid I don't even remember that scene. Maybe I was dozing off. Yeah. (laughs) No, No, but that just just proves your point. There's a lot of stuff in here that didn't need to be in here. Yeah. Like that right there. I mean, I I sat there and I watched it. Of course, I was kind of getting drowsy myself a little bit at certain, certain points, but I, I, it's forgettable. You don't want a bunch of scenes that are forgettable. You want scenes that are going to like, wow, you know, just like I, I've sat through, you know, boring movies before, but I'll tell you what, they, they had a couple of scenes and they're like, wow, you know, that, that sticks with you. And this one, just like you said, it's just filler. And it's like, you know, yeah. uh, there's not a lot of scenes that really stick out in this. Well, it seems to me that what, what it needed to have a, a couple of extra drafts of the script but you can't really be sure when it, with a movie like this uh, how exactly the deal came together. Apparently, originally, it, the writer of the original story is somebody who was basing this on some supposed actual True haunted. Yeah. Yeah. I think that they were trying to be too, fa- too faithful to that story. They should have said, mm-hmm. OK, well, that's just a starting point. That's just like every other fucking ghost story we've ever heard. <laughs> uh, we need to finely tune this so that every scene builds the story and makes it more dramatic, because that's what we're really talking about here. The dramaturgy is weak. They're they're not really making each scene pay. You know, it's just, oh, isn't George C. Scott, boy, he really, he commands the screen. You know, he's always interesting to watch, which is true. But the things he's saying most of the time in the movie are not really, like they have that whole wasted business after they have this whole set of characters that they bring in the mother and the daughter who live in the house where the, which is on the land where you know, they built the well yeah. <laughs> and that, that means that we in order to get there we have to have all those scenes of him at the you know the uh, surveyor's office or wherever the fuck it is the house the county records office uh, talking to a guy who has all the stuff laid out for him, you know, on uh, this book, you can see the houses. Uh, this is boring stuff. <laughs> you know? Part of the city where the Carmichael Ranch was located. Right here. What does that little mark right there mean? According to the legend uh, here, that was the location of a well on that property. I see. Then in the 1914 atlas, which is opened here to the same area, there's been uh, one large lot has apparently been sold off. But the property is very much the same, and the location of the well is still given. Right, exactly. In the 1928 atlas... And it's not only boring, it's something that we've seen in plenty of other movies done better than that, right? I mean, that's similar to the sort of research that you see Darren McGavin doing in The Night Strangler, the TV movie that launched the Kolchak series. They have those Mm -hmm. scenes of the guy going looking at old uh, newspaper articles. Maybe it's never done well, but in this it's particularly poorly done. They're going for a very specific thing that they want to find in a hundred years worth of newspapers. And they just so happen on the first page of the book. Oh, there, there it, it is. is yeah. That's what we're looking for. <laughs> a little bit of research and they know the whole story. The whole thing opens up 
and they can explain the whole thing about the wills or whatever and the little boy being drowned, blah, blah, blah. Say so that that's too easy. And it's also too complicated a thing. You know, all that sort of uh, motivation for a ghost haunting should be a little more straightforward, you know, uh, because what do you do with all that information? What is he yeah, supposed I think, to do? Now, yeah, do you think it would have been like a better film if it was just the haunting all the way up? And then at the end, that's when you, you know, he finds the body and then you find out, oh, this is what happened. You know what I'm saying? Like just kind of wrap it up at the end with why the, you know, why the body's in there, the guy Could killing be. his kid and all that. But, you know, to just leave the rest of the movie a, we don't know what's going on. It's just a haunting at, at this point. You know what I'm saying? Well, I want to say what, what needs to be uh, done with a script like this is you have to ask yourself, First of all, who is George C. Scott's character? Surely they don't want us to think that this is just George C. Scott. Right? Yeah. It's yeah. supposed to be a person. <laughs> it's supposed to be a person who has some qualms or weaknesses that might make his character interesting, right? So he's just lost his wife and his daughter. He finds himself in this new place. And there's this very attractive young woman who is showing him around. And naturally, she sort of sparks to him. And, and he's, he's reluctant because he doesn't want to get into a relationship because anybody goes through an experience like that where they've lost people that they were supposed to be taken care of. This is a theme that you see in a lot of horror movies, right? <laughs> the, the parent or the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, responsible person who, because of their inattention or their ineptitude, somebody in their care ends up being hurt. It's also true of the exorcist, right? The big issue in the exorcist is she the mother can't help her daughter right and jason miller is the priest who can't help the priests that are coming to him for counseling there are people in positions of authority who can't help the people that are in their charge uh, chief brody and jaws they had that great scene where the woman slaps his face you didn't stop my boy from being eaten by the shark yeah. you knew that this was going to happen and of course it's that provides the spark that makes him go out and fight the shark right the humiliation of that and the guilt of that. But in this, there's so much potential. And I don't see where the fact that he lost his wife and child have any bearing on the rest of the movie. Yeah, I feel like that. I feel like that, that the only reason they've done that was just to get him alone in the house. Right. But you could have just said, hey, I'm going to go stay in this house for a couple of months to finish writing and just leave him out. Right. You know, I don't think the, yeah. you know, him losing his wife and daughter, I don't think really, uh, you push his character along you keep expecting the haunting that's going on to have some relationship connection to the death but, of a yeah but it never did doesn't really no i mean uh, uh at first they suggest and this is another example of stuff that really doesn't really need to be in there they say, uh, suggest that there's a little girl that got killed by a, a coal truck in front of the house and we're thinking mm -hmm. maybe it's her that's uh haunting the house and then that's thrown aside oh it's not her it's this other thing why is that mentioned what's the point of that yeah the only reason i can think they mentioned it is because they want to draw some parallel between his experience with his kid being killed by a truck and and the little girl here but it's a red herring and it's sort of you know we're then left with the actual story yeah. and that doesn't have anything to do with uh i mean there's no reason why he should feel any sense of guilt right his situation is that his uh, family were killed by uh, through an accident he wasn't responsible yeah. uh in this case the father actually drowned his kid so there's no real similarity there right no you're How, right like like maybe if he was 
maybe George, you know, he was driving the car and he lost control and then slammed right into the truck and he's a lone survivor. That would have made a lot more sense. Not stuck in a phone booth, you know, just banging on it. Like I I get what you're saying. It it needs better connection than that. The other thing is that the attempt to make a villain out of the father even though dramatically there's no way to make that pay off. We can never bring the guilty verdict home to the father. The father's gone. The problem here is once he discovers that, you know, and, and it's not really clear, to, it wasn't clear to me whether that was his vision, he's seeing the little boy being drowned by the father, or if that was something that the filmmakers were showing the audience. Uh, but I gather that George C. Scott saw it mentally somehow, uh, it's once you do that, that's the end of the story, right? Once you figure out what the banging is, then where do you go with that? I mean, yeah. it's sort of like if you had a Sherlock Holmes story where he's investigating a crime that happened 100 years ago and there's no way to punish the guilty party, right? Where do you go with a story like that? So it seems to me that it would be more interesting instead of making it into a detection story, make it into a story that uh, involves a child who is so despondent and distraught at the treatment of his father that he's haunting the house. And then when he behaves inexplicably, ah, here's an angle. Suppose the little boy thinks of George C. Scott as his father. Oh, yeah. Suppose George C. Scott that has a spitten image of his father, or <laughs> has the same bearing. And he's torturing George C. Scott because he reminds him of his father who tortured him. And George C. Scott is tortured because of his feelings of guilt at losing his family. So he's there because in a way he feels that he deserves to be tortured. Is that a possible? No, that could be. Yeah, that would be. I would would watch that one. Yeah. Can we see that movie? (laughs) Now, what was the, what was the deal with like the Senator coming to the house at the end of the movie? Yeah. That's another, the ending is kind of like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) it was just like, man, why did he even need to show up? And right. No, again, like you said, he was, he really didn't have a part in any of it. But I mean, so. And nobody in the movie up to that point has done any astral projection. Right. Uh, but suddenly he has the ability to send his soul to the house to walk up the stairs for what? To do what? To get, get He's going to drown himself in the bathtub? That business with the fire on the banister, that is so rudimentary. I mean, this is a set, right? And the easiest thing would be to set up a gag like that, a little <laughs> yeah. flame things along the banister. And they had the falling chandelier, uh, which doesn't really make much sense because why suddenly, if the boy is accomplishing his goal of getting Melvin Douglas to kill himself or to die from a you know, heart attack or whatever, why would he also be throwing chandeliers at George C. Scott? When did he become so violent? Yeah. Um, that also makes that scene with the cop not work too well. That's one of the weaker death scenes that I've seen in, in these type of movies. Mm-hmm. We don't even see it. <laughs> you just see the car overturned and a <laughs> hole in the windshield. Upside down in the middle of the road. It's that man, that policeman was just at your house. DeWitt, he's dead. Now, they wanted to be classy, so they didn't want to do like an omen type death scene. Right. Uh, but, that, you know, that doesn't, the boy really isn't, the little boy's ghost isn't really killing people, uh, right? That's not the reputation the house has. 
be careful because you might end up dead if you hang out there. And but suddenly he decides this particular guy is deserving of being killed. And he's going to throw a chandelier at uh, Joyce C. Scott. Uh, Hell House, which was written by Richard Matheson, which is the same guy who wrote Stir of Echoes, actually. Um, that's a much better, and they made that into a movie with Roddy McDowell. And that's a corker altogether. That's a great, a great movie. Uh, sometime maybe we should cover that. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that. I don't think no, I have. Yeah. I don't I, No, I haven't. But Richard Matheson uh, based the idea of Hell House on the haunting of Hill House, which is the Shirley Jackson uh, mm -hmm. book that they made into the haunting, which is another great ghost story. And Richard Matheson sort of elaborated on the ideas there that the house served as a kind of battery and the, the spirits were sort of absorbed into the house. And uh, there's a, 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 a scientist who's developed this sort of machine that's supposed to discharge the spirits from the house. Uh, and they, uh, there's a scene there where uh, the poltergeist activity becomes very violent and glasses are bursting in people's hands and the light fixtures are falling, raining down on people. It's done much better than this because you actually believe that the people are in danger. In this, mm -hmm. nobody is going to convince me uh, 10 minutes before the end of the movie that suddenly a chandelier it's going to kill George C. Scott. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's not going to happen. And do you think all the do you think the like the ramping up the you know the fire and the the death? Do you think that was a studio thing? Oh well, I saying, don't. I don't know if they're saying, "Hey, let's make this a little bit more exciting." I think it was the producers. <laughs> we got to do something, right? But fire is not one of the colors that they were using to paint this picture. Water is right. All right. When? Why are we suddenly dealing with fire? When did the kid become a fire starter? <laughs> uh, it's because they, it's something that can be cheaply done and it looks spectacular. I mean, we talked about in the Hammer movies how uh, in Hammer and in the uh, Roger Corman Poe films, that was like always the way the movie ends. Somebody knocks over a candelabra and suddenly the whole place is <laughs> yeah. a, a, a castle that stood for like 500 years is burning down somehow. <laughs> It's made out of yeah. stone, but somehow it's collapsing. And but anyway, that they figured, well, we need some sort of action in this, so let's have some visual spectacle at the end. But it's very weak, and and uh, Trish Vanderveer's character, and she's a terrific actress. I thought her uh, in, interaction with uh, Peter Falk in the Columbo episode was great. Uh, she's no slouch when it comes to acting. Now she was was she married to George C. Scott? She was, but apparently okay. the difficulties in their marriage resulted in uh, the two of them spending more time together on set than in real life. Yeah. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> Mostly separated apparently, because George C. Scott was apparently uh, quite a difficult person. Uh, can I can I bring something up too on the uh, in the cover? I, I I just looked over at at my uh, my iPad here, and it says. How did you die, Joseph? Did you die in this house? Why do you remain? Right. So, like, like you said, like it, it just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Well, uh, the uh, the problem is that question that they're asking is the end of the film. That's what we're, that's where that's where yeah. the film should end when we finally figure out why he's there, because that's what happens in Hell House. In Hell House. The climactic scene, which is a doozy, with Roddy McDowell facing down the ghost, uh, that's uh, the, the powerful man whose ghost is still inhabiting the house, and being knocked off his feet by the force of the ghost. No one, no one could 
steam up he could be a real ham and it's delightful to watch him with the veins popping out on his neck and on his forehead it's terrific but there's nothing like this in this movie this movie uh, we don't really understand what the motivation for the ghost is other than revealing his father's crime and it's not really clear why he would care if george c scott is able to convince other people i mean what's the likelihood anyway that a ghost would be concerned about the justice system, you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as you say, the, the the what they needed is to establish that the Melvin Douglas character knew all of this, and then he becomes uh, complicit. And then, if the, the the ghost, the little boy want, wants to somehow get back at him, that makes sense. Uh, but uh, the idea of having that scene with. Uh, George C. Scott and Trish Van Devere going to the home of the woman and going through that long rigmarole of explaining why we're here. And the little and the woman says, well, you know, I wouldn't I would never allow you to look at my place. But my little daughter just had a dream last night and blah, blah, blah. So go ahead. Tear the place up. So they <laughs> tear the place up and they find a hand, the bones of a hand, mm -hmm. which would seem to me to be pretty much uh, that you, you've proved your case. Right. There's a, the hand. Yeah. Uh, but they call the cops. Never a good idea in a ghost story to call the cops. Yeah. <laughs> because that's tedious stuff, you know, trying to convince police officers are all about logic and detection and doing things by the book, and you don't want that in a ghost story. It doesn't look like it. You think there might be something else down there? No. Assistant coroner said those bones had been down there maybe 50 years. Do you have some idea who that child was? No, not really. What's not really mean? No. And it makes things more difficult because now that the police are involved, George C. Scott has to leave and then break back into the house to go down and continue to dig. You find human remains or whatever skeleton. Yeah, you call the cops and then, of course, they look into it and they excavate whatever else is left. Right. But like you said... The, why is that in a ghost story? You wouldn't confront that problem of what you yeah. got to do when you find a body. If it was George C. Scott by himself in a house down in the basement, digging on some dark and stormy night, right? Mm -hmm. That would be an effective horror scene all alone in a haunted house down in the basement in a hole and finding whatever skeleton or whatever. That would be, you know, scary <laughs> to put it simply. Yeah. But, but doing that in a in a crappy looking home i guess they shot that part on location it, it, with a with the mother and the daughter and i guess the, the who do they bring in a son or as well yeah the son came in yeah, then, then there's cops there and then it's, you know it's like oh, like a fucking party you know yeah. this, this isn't <laughs> scary you know there's no mood or tension to that at all so all of that is wasted stuff and it also means that we have to do stuff over again. And you know you're dealing with a poorly structured script when there's that sort of redundant action and things, people have to break into the same place twice. You know, that 
you know, we already did that. He, we already went through the process of ga gaining access to this place. He told his whole story to this woman. We had to listen to her whole fucking story. We had to <laughs> <laughs> and now we're going to have to do it again. We have to mm. break into the place the second time. Why didn't you just have him break into the place in the first place? Right? Why go through all that rigmarole? And then we have to have a scene. Uh, here's another sort of rule. If you want scenes of hauntings to be effective, we have to know the people. We have to be introduced to the people who, who are being haunted, right? Here we have a scene where the woman mentioned her daughter, but we didn't see her yet. We only see her on the night when she's being woken up by the sound of the ghost, right? Mm -hmm. We can't relate to that little girl because we're just meeting her. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know who she is. And we don't care. We're not invested in the character. So there's no suspense there. And that really is the key problem with the film is there's really no great feeling of suspense. It's spooky and creepy and it's well shot and the acting is okay. Uh, but it's not really scary, you know? It's not really dramatic. It's, it's kind of limp, you know? And the ending scene, again, somehow... Uh, George C. Scott, uh, they escape the burning house and they, he's seen Melvin Douglas's astral body stalking up the stairs. So the first thing that occurs to him, we must race to the senator's mansion. Why? <laughs> I mean, isn't that a resolution? If that's the senator's ghost or spirit or whatever, that must mean he's pretty much... I mean, the guy looks like he's practically dead anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pretty so, old dude. So why would they be racing to the, the guy's mansion? What do they think they could do? They're going to save him? Yeah. <laughs> and they drive up practically to his front door. And they're actually there sitting on his front step when they're bringing the body out. Apparently, there's very bad security at the senator's mansion. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And nobody says to George C. Scott as he's slumped on the guy's front doorstep. And we said, what the fuck are you doing here? Yeah. <laughs> what the hell are you? <laughs> a lot of holes. You're right. There's a lot of holes in this. Like You see a guy just sitting on the steps of Senator's house. Oh, what, okay, whatever. What, what, is Trish, what is Trish Vanderveer's uh, arc here? What has she gotten out of any of this? Uh, she's just sort of a... a uh, a, a, a space holder, you know. All right, yeah. She's the female lead. That's disappointing because she's a terrific actress, and I would like to have seen something more there, you know, some sort of wisdom, right? Like she could help George C. Scott deal with what is going on, help him explain it, instead of just being somebody who's standing nearby. And they go through the trouble of introducing her mother, who's the flying nun actress, who's a very unusual mm -hmm. looking woman. Uh, and I kept thinking, well, surely that's going to, she's going to be weird in some way. Maybe she's has, uh, maybe she's a medium as well. Or she has psychic powers or something because she looks like she should. I mean, she was hanging around with a flying nun. So anything is possible, right? <laughs> they go to the trouble of introducing her and letting us know that that's Trish Vanderveer's mother. Um, and none of that goes anywhere. That mother doesn't play an important part in the film at all. Just sort of yeah stands around and looks strange. You know? Yeah, maybe, maybe the church friend, maybe she should have been either the psychic, like the medium oh. that he had come over, or maybe she should have had some kind of been related to the family in some way that would have well, that's connected her to the story a little bit more. Right, that's the sort of thinking that you need. You need to start thinking, 
how can we make this character relevant to this story, right? What is it about her that would make her useful in a, in a ghost story? And maybe it could be something like she's uh, had some experience similar to what the little boy had. Uh, so she has some sympathy for the child or the child has some sort of connection to her so she can uh, understand she's sort of on his wavelength. She can, she can interpret for, um, for George C. Scott because he's obviously not the guy that a ghost of a little boy would talk to freely, right? Because mm -hmm. he's, he's a person that even a grown man would have a difficult time talking to freely. He looks like a fucking, you know, like he's going to rip your head off. Most <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Trish Vanderveer's character is the sort of go-between. He can't understand what the, boy, what the boy's ghost is doing. But Trish Vanderveer's character can interpret it. She can understand it because she's on his wavelength. So that would make her useful to the story, right? Right. But as it is, she just gets to play the crying female. Uh, and there's really no consequence. I mean, there's that scene there where they say that she's lost her job and he, uh, they've canceled the lease on the house. Uh, mm -hmm. And that doesn't have any real impact, you know, uh, because you're thinking, so what? You know, he's a he's a wealthy guy. Presumably, she is as well. It's not like they've been delivered some terrible death blow. He lost the house. Right. He lost the lease to a haunted house. I mean, I don't think anybody. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> yeah. But uh, anyway, so so I think that's the big problem. The uh, the need to sharpen the script was where they sort of fell down, uh, and they they seem to be trying to do. To, throw in references to other movies, The Omen, The Exorcist, Rosemary's Baby, which were the usual suspects around that time. That's what everybody was trying to imitate. Uh, and that probably was the wrong, they needed an original idea, I guess. Yeah, I feel like, yeah, I feel like, I feel like studios get involved a lot and have them add exposition. Mm -hmm. Make sure people understand what there's going on. <laughs> make, make the characters yeah. say it five times. Right. But hopefully, maybe may, may they can fix all that when they do the reboot, which apparently has been in development since. Oh, they're doing another one. Oh, really? Yeah, it says it's in development since twenty twenty. So, well, maybe, see, it's, maybe it's not that's happening. That's the thing now. with 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 the, this movie. You know, um, I, I don't see a problem in redoing this one or uh, having a remake of this one. But there's some movies that are just you know you shouldn't touch, which they do a lot of. But this one, like, you know, I mean, they could have made it a little bit, a little bit better. But um, I, I just wonder how you I don't know what actors would be a part of this or I, I don't know. Hopefully they maybe hopefully they listen to this episode. <laughs> and get some notes <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they will, <laughs> because that's what that needs. Uh, a lot of that is missing in this movie. As long as they leave in the noise. And the ball bouncing down the steps, which is a, the two which is previous a, parts. Yeah. Another reference to another horror movie. That's Mario Bava's Kill Baby Kill. Yeah, a little girl, the ghost of a little girl that haunts a, a town, and she's preceded in some scenes. We see her carrying a little ball, and some of the scenes you see the ball rolling out before she shows up. Uh, so there was they took that idea from from Kill Baby Kill. Yeah, there was some there was oh, something right. creepy about that ball rolling down the steps and him taking it and throwing it in the river and then he comes back and here it comes back down the steps yeah. again. So yeah. that was that was really good. <laughs> well, that, that was an effective scene. Yeah. yeah. So if they could leave that and the noise in and not show, because you know they're gonna have <laughs> CGI. 
Well, oh, got his kid floating around. <laughs> well, in 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 some aspects, that probably would have helped this movie a little bit. I think to see uh, kind of an apparition. I, I don't know. You got to see less. Well, I mean, like a certain scene, like maybe the the in reveal scene. You see, you know, the kid ghost or whatever. You don't see it through the whole movie. I'm just saying, like at the end, that probably would have been pretty cool. And they had the technology back then, didn't they? I mean, when oh, was well, guys made. They, I mean, they, they wouldn't have done it with CGI, but they, yes, they certainly could have done ghosts. I, I, yeah. I think that probably uh, the experience of the past 10 or 20 years since we've had CGI suggests that you probably are better off doing ghosts in traditional fashion rather than using CGI. CGI right. ghosts, I mean, CGI is great for things like spaceships and, you know, and things like that. But for something that's supposed to be so ethereal and, uh, and amorphous, uh, CGI is too cold. And, and I mean, everybody mm. knows how you're doing it. Everybody can recognize CGI. Um, yeah. One of the things about Francis Ford Coppola's version of Dracula that I think was really admirable was they did all these special effects the old-fashioned way. And, yeah, in camera. Right. All techniques are the most effective for a supernatural story. For a science fiction story, it's a different different thing. Yeah, yeah so, you can't get away with that. <laughs> I mean, when you look at the remake that they did of The Haunting, which is filled with CGI, that's not, not completely lousy. I mean, yeah. frankly. It was uh, the one not, with uh, Liam Neeson, right? I yes. guess it was Liam yeah. Neeson, yeah. Yeah, yeah you're right. <laughs> and the, but that came out in like 2000, 2001. Right. So they, had the, they were working on, they had the technology to do the, I guess in, the, in that they had the, uh, what was it, a topiary that comes alive? Or they have yeah. St- 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 yeah, something like that, yeah. <laughs> in uh, Tim Burton's dreadful Dark Shadows thing, again, same problem. Uh, see, using CGI to represent supernatural things doesn't work. You know, it just looks like CGI. So that, I would recommend against that. But I think what they really need is, uh, well, first of all, I don't know if you strip away all the bad things, even though we've been able to construct it a somewhat better story uh, as we've been talking. I, I think if you stripped away all the stuff that doesn't really work in this movie, you might just as well go and write your own original ghost story. <laughs> You're right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, there's not, not much here. Uh, the key thing is to, as far as I'm concerned, is to get the person in the place and to, uh, and leave them there. and let, and let and, them, Yeah, keep them there too. Yeah, right. don't... Because here they're going all over the place and they're visiting the map office and they're taking drives. Uh, they go, they have that long scene where they go to the historical society and they're standing on the patio, look at with the streets on either side, which was a beautiful shot, but I don't know why we're watching it in this movie. Right. Yeah. It's a Canadian production. So mm-hmm. they, they wanted to put in a lot of eye candy. They wanted to put in a lot of attractive locations. So if you put all that stuff in, into this film, it makes it feel like a big, expensive hollywood movie right yeah that seems to be what they were trying to do and it worked because i think this was the most uh, successful canadian production up to that point uh and it's considered according to the wikipedia article on it an influential canadian film or the most influential canadian film which wow doesn't sound right to me because david cronenberg was doing his movies uh and i would think he would probably be the most influential Canadian filmmaker. I can't think of anybody else that comes close. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to find the I was trying to find the uh box office numbers, but I can't seem to <laughs> find them on 
I guess IMDb, you got about you got to pay a subscription now to get all the good information. Well, according to the Wikipedia article, it was successful. That doesn't give a precise amount. The critics liked it. Apparently, it was well received by the critics. Um, but Joshie Scott seems to be one of those actors who, maybe like this film, never realized his full potential. Right. Yeah. yeah. Seems to me he was always. At least, particularly at this time in his life, he uh, was doing a lot of movies that sort of were misses, good, well-intentioned, seemed like a good idea at the time movies. Uh, and that really was true from the 70s on for him. He did Patton, which was this enormous success. Yeah. He won, won the Oscar, he turned it down. He did um, Dr. Strangelove before that, I guess. Uh, and that was a tremendous success, right? Uh, so he had two really great films under his belt. He was highly regarded as a stage actor. And then he started to do some rather weak movies, like he did The Day of the Dolphin, uh, which was Mike Nichols' first big bomb after The Graduate. Uh, well, actually, Catch-22 might have been unsuccessful as well. But uh, Day of the Dolphin was a particularly embarrassing failure because it was such a silly movie. It's a movie about uh, dolphins that are being trained to assassinate the president. What? You're right. <laughs> System of communication. Speaking our language is very difficult for us. Why is he doing it then? What motivates him? He does it for me. Why? Far? Ah. Why does Far speak? Far speak. Yes. Why Far speak? Far speak. Far. Why does Far speak to Far? It was a prestigious film. They spent a lot of money on it because Mike Nichols had just had a, you know, one of the most, yeah. one of the biggest hits of all time with The Graduate. That was an enormous hit. Uh, so they lavished a lot of money on George C. Scott was in it. So a lot of money was spent on a movie about a president uh, being at risk from a dolphin. You're right. <laughs> now, when and it comes the, to George C. Scott, I would say that, <laughs> like, I mean, you know, he's known for Patton or whatever. My favorite performances for him is obviously. Exorcist uh, 3. Exorcist 3. Oh, no. 12 Angry Men and then uh, the, his version of the Christmas Carol that he was in. Oh, that was terrific. Those are yeah. like the those are the three that I, whenever you say his name, that's what comes to mind. Other, than, that, other than Patton, but that's like, yeah, everybody knows him for that. And it's a good, solid production of that story. It's uh, Oh, yeah. It does, one it does of my, a, my favorites. Also a ghost story, and it does all the things in that that this movie fails to do. Which Should is, have done, yeah. <laughs> Precision and storytelling and clarity and character motivation and the consequences of things, you know. Uh, but he also did Exorcist 3, which, uh, and he also did the Hindenburg. Uh, so it looks like he was sort of looking for, uh, looking to get in on whatever was voguish in Hollywood at the time. Like the Hindenburg came late in the disaster film cycle. And even though most people would have said, you know, a story about a, a dirigible that blows up and is completely gone in the space of a minute, that doesn't really give you much material to work with as a disaster movie, right? Most disaster movies, the disaster happens at the start of the movie, and then you have people trying to survive the rest of the movie. This, the whole movie, everything's fine until the ship blows up at the end. Right. That, 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 you know, it wasn't a terrible movie, but it was certainly, you know, it was not a great idea. And he did, um, they might be giants which is kind of an interesting movie, but it's not really... Have you ever seen that one? I don't think no, so. No, I haven't seen that that's one the, That's the movie that they got the name for the band from. You've heard that the band... Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
George C. Scott plays an, a, a judge or a lawyer who is me mentally ill and comes to believe that he's Sherlock Holmes. Uh, and mm. uh, he's assisted in this, in his adventures by um, uh, Joanne, what was, Paul, what was Paul Newman's wife's name? Joanne Wood? Uh, I believe so, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, she plays a psychiatrist whose name coincidentally is Dr. Watson. And <laughs> when I sat down to watch this a couple of years ago, I managed to find a copy. And I thought to myself, I've been waiting for years to see this. I tried to rent it when it came out on VHS and the tape I got was defective. So I only got like 10 minutes into the movie. But the oh, first right. 10 minutes are great. So I was waiting for years to when can I get another copy of this? And the first 10 minutes are great. You start, you, when you watch this, you're thinking, this is brilliant. A crazy guy who thinks he's Sherlock Holmes, and it works. He actually right. is like Sherlock Holmes. It is the logic. Think he can talk, but he won't. The silence is the clue. No coaching, please. I work by pure deduction. Uh, who was silent? Who had everything but sound? Uh, the mutes of history? No, they couldn't talk. He can. A monk with vows of silence. Why, the early movie. Why, the man's a silent film star. Which one? The most unlikely one. It's only logical. Uh, that means he's brave, huh? Man of action. Stern. Aloof. Yet passionate. My God. <laughs> Rudolph Valentino. Sherlock Holmes. But then... Almost as if they fired the writer and brought in somebody new. Right in the middle of the movie, the whole thing goes to shit. Because <laughs> they have him become a ridiculous character. Like he's sneaking along the streets with his magnifying glass, you know, and things like that. Silly stuff. There's one scene where he's looking for clues in a trash can in Times Square. And he actually gets into a fight with the garbage man. And he's rolling around in the street uh, in, in, amid the trash in Times Square. That makes the character look like a fool. I wanted to yeah. see a story where the crazy guy actually is Sherlock Holmes, where he actually is able to solve crimes. Right, yeah. yeah. Anyway, you guys should check it out. It's <laughs> worth worth watching because it is kind of a cult film. And apparently the guys who uh, named their band after it, they were impressed by it. So oh, well, there you go. Yeah. Joanne Woodward. Was Joanne Woodward, right. Yeah. Yes, yeah. All right, so... Uh... Martin Scorsese included this movie, The Changeling, in his top 11 scariest horror films. Mr. Poe, where's it land on yours? Oh. <laughs> wow. Um, scary? No, not really. Um, like I said, you know, we kind of picked it apart, and, it, you know, it's still, it's still a, a decent, you know, ghost story. This was my first watch, so to give a... 100%, you know, rating on top scary movie. I can't really say I was scared, but it is decent enough to where I would watch it again. Yeah, it's a pleasant, it's a pleasant, uh, if you're in it the is. mood for something spooky with nice sets and nice photography. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, but uh, it just seemed to me that it's a little bit of a missed opportunity because it could have been great, you know? Oh yeah, for uh, sure. And uh, they, they fall a little short of, of the mark simply because they, they didn't work on the script enough, I think, you know, and after, uh, after, after, <clears throat> after watching in, I think I realized that the, 
just these the the creepiness of the sound and then that ball that's like i think that's what got me mm-hmm. watching it you know alone in the dark by myself mm-hmm. well, that <laughs> watching, helps. It, watching it the second time during the day with the lights on it wasn't didn't have the same yeah. effect <laughs> <laughs> all right so do you do you put the changing on your list of uh top horror films scariest horror films no, I don't know what Martin Scorsese is thinking of there. A <laughs> couple of times I've seen Scorsese sort of uh, tip his hat to people by mentioning them in those type of lists, uh, yeah. mentioning directors that he likes or, or mention films that he feels maybe hasn't, haven't been appreciated enough or he's trying to draw attention to them. But I don't really see anything in this movie that strikes me as being particularly remarkable from, a, from the standpoint of craftsmanship. It's a good, solid piece of work, but it's nothing, uh, nothing startling, you know. I mean, all the films, including Kill Baby Kill, which I assume is also on Martin Scorsese's list, uh, are superior in almost every respect. And I don't even think Kill Baby Kill, Baby Kill is Mario Bava's best film, but it's better than this. Right. I think. We'll have to track down Martin's list and see what all he has on there. Yeah. <laughs> I have a feeling he probably would have listed some Mario Bava films because that's the type of director that he would have wanted to highlight. He wanted to try to elevate, use his power, which is a good thing. He uses his power to try to bring attention to things that, and people that haven't gotten enough attention. Um, But I don't know, in this case, I don't know what it is about it that he's trying to draw our attention to. Certainly Mm -hmm. that climax is not. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And I would say if anybody was composing a list like that, you would have to put Hell House above it hell house is hardly mentioned by anybody but it's a very unusually shot movie and has an extraordinary uh, uh synthesizer music score and has a great cast and i recommend that over over this so if you haven't seen hell house that one you should seek out Probably track that one down yes yeah as a general right. rule if you see roddy mcdowell in a horror movie you should watch it. Yeah. <laughs> Roddy McDowell was also in Colombo. Uh, right. <laughs> we got to do a Colombo episode. We now. should, really, yes. Yeah. Yeah. A, lot of, a lot of ground to cover. You're going to bring out the Colombo impression to me. <laughs> All right. So, Aaron, where uh, can everybody find you on the internet? Oh, they can find me at, they call me Mr. Poe on Instagram, um, Slasher app, and uh, Twitter as well. And of course, Aaron Poe on Facebook. That's it. <laughs> All right, William. I'm on uh, Facebook uh, uh, under my name, William Hopkins. I have a Demon Resurrection, my film Demon Resurrection, and my film Sleepless Nights, which is upcoming. Uh, they both have Facebook pages you can search for. Uh, they both have Twitter accounts, uh, but I no longer have an Instagram account. And that's a story that I will tell you in another episode. Oh, okay. there you go. <laughs> stay, stay tuned. All right. Well, thanks for joining us to talk about this movie. And until next week, we will continue to watch The Good, The Bad, and The Cheaply Made. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. The unburied dead are coming back to life.